0: The Connected Generation. My name is Nikhe Anani and I am your host. This week's episode number 52 is with the amazing Steve Legler. Steve is a family legacy advisor. He's based in Canada. What I love about Steve is that he has an insider's journey in a business family himself. His father had founded their family business and he had thought he would take over the business, but there was an unexpected liquidity event which happened in his 20s. And instead, Steve found himself managing the family office. So in this conversation, we had a very meaty conversation on whether to sell the family business. If you're selling the family business, how do you manage the family's wealth? How do you ensure that this wealth doesn't pull the family apart, but instead keeps the family together? And Steve's extensive experience both as an insider and as a professional really came through so I thoroughly recommend you listen to this. Thank you and share the love. Hi Steve, I'm so excited to have you today in the Connect Generation. Welcome. Thank you Nikkei, it's really nice to be with you. We connected last year
1: during the pandemic, during your conference we met and I always knew that I'd be talking to you again in some circumstance sooner or later, so great to
0: be here with you. This should be cool. So tell us about Steve, about Back Journey. How did you get to where you are today? Okay, well,
1: I'm in Canada, Montreal, Canada. I was born here. My parents had immigrated from Europe in their teen years and met here, and my father became an immigrant entrepreneur. And he had started up a steel fabrication company before I was born. He started that in 63. I was born in 64. I have two older sisters. And in the 60s, if you had a dirty business like the steel business, you didn't think of your daughters as potential successors. But when you had a son, all of a sudden, well, here we go. So my whole (laughs) life was sort of laid out for me of what was expected of me. And I guess I didn't know any better and didn't have a better plan. So I followed in my dad's footsteps, working in the business during high school, during my teen years, every summer, went to McGill and did a business degree because what do you study? If you're going to take over a business, you have to study business. So I just did what I was told, went straight into the company, worked there for three years. Then it was time to go and do my MBA which I did, and I went to London, Ontario, to the University of Western Ontario, which is the best MBA school in Canada. Came back, 26 years old, getting ready to eventually take over this business. And lo and behold, on my first day back, my dad calls me into his office and says, close the door, sit down, we have to have a talk. The last two years have been gone, things have been going downhill. We have to do something, we have to close, we have to merge, we have to sell. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, this was not never my dream it was sort of an obligation I felt to be the dutiful son. And then all of a sudden this was being like, this isn't going to happen, but I was okay with it strangely. And long story short, six months later, we had gone from 300 employees down to four and two of us were named Steve Legler. And so I was Steve (laughs) Legler Jr. My dad had gone off to run his farm, raising cattle and had an apple orchard and that kept him occupied. And then Because we didn't sell the shares of the business, we just sold assets. We still had a corporate structure. We still had some real estate. We had some money from the divestiture. We had some patented products. So I had a job. I had to take care of certain things. What I didn't realize at the time was I was essentially running what we would now call a family office, a small Mm. family office, Mm -hmm. but a family office nonetheless. But I didn't realize that, number one, because it was 1991 and the term family office really hadn't become known, and certainly I didn't realize I was doing it. So I ended up running and uh, managing that family office for the next 20 years or so, while also marrying into another business family, starting a family, raising kids. And then lo and behold, in the 2013, I stumbled into a program here in Canada called Family Enterprise Advisor. And that was going on in Toronto about five hours down the road from me. This was a program that was designed by the University of British Columbia. And it was designed to take people who work with family businesses and teach them more about what makes family businesses tick. So here I am. I'm in a room in Toronto with about 20 people who are either working for a bank, they're selling life insurance, they're accountants. Or asset managers. And I look around and I realize I have nothing in common with these people. What am I doing here? Well, after a few sessions, I realized what I was doing there. The people at the front of the room were talking about the things they did with business families, helping them work on their values, helping Mm. them work on their vision, helping them prepare their next generation, helping them create a family council. And Mm. I was like, wow, wait a second, that's a thing? People do that? Oh my God. It was like I finally figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Now, I was 48 at the time, but better late than never. So (laughs) I jumped into the deep end, wrote a book called Shift Your Family Business, started a website, started a blog, found a few clients, and I've been doing this ever since and loving every minute of it and still learning more about it and finding different and better ways to serve different families in business or enterprising. Wow.
0: Wow. Okay. Okay. Firstly, so you were a junior, your father, Steve Legler. What was life like as a junior? Did you feel like you were living in senior's shadow?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I have told anyone who wants to listen when they're having a child and considering it, naming it after dad, junior, I always say, no, 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 please don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Let the kid have their own life. And I managed to save one. I have a cousin who... When his wife was pregnant, she was saying, oh, why don't we name him after you? And he said, no, 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 no. Steve said, don't do that. And so saved one.
0: Rescued one. I don't
1: know if I'm going to save any others. There aren't many Steves anymore either. If I meet someone Steve, they're typically over 40. And (laughs) I saw one once a little while ago that was like a teenager. Wow, who did that? (laughs) It was definitely a shadow thing. People would phone the house and say, can I speak to Steve? And it would be for me. And then my dad would come to the phone and get mad. Why don't you tell him to call you Steven? And well, his name was Stefan because he was from a German part of Europe. And so he was using a different name. So so was I. And you know, you can't tell people what to call you. People call you what they call you. And so, and then when I started to work for the business, that was like, so now I have to put junior on my business card. So I was funny, like right after I got my MBA had this business card that said Steve Legler Jr. MBA. And I happened to meet with some friends of mine from MBA school. I gave a guy my card. He goes, oh, you're a junior MBA. What's a junior MBA? But I mean, he was just kidding me. But it's just having the junior after your name can be a positive, but I think on balance, it's typically a negative. So that's why I don't recommend people do that.
0: (laughs) And so you went to business school and your plan was to jump right into the family business. And senior comes up with this great idea to sell the business what was that like so
1: it's funny you say my plan was it wasn't my plan there was a plan and I followed the plan but it wasn't my plan so I was following so here I am doing my undergrad and I see in my last year I see a lot of my friends coming in every other day wearing a suit because I have an interview that was arranged on campus and I'm looking at them and they're looking at me go oh you don't have to do this because you've already got a job lined up they thought I was lucky now when I look back they were the lucky ones. They actually had some opportunities to go and explore and pursue. And I didn't have that. And in fact, at the time, my father had joined an organization called CAFE, Canadian Association of Family Enterprise. And this was for business families. He had gone and heard some speakers, probably guys who are doing what I'm doing now, but like 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago. And he <laughs> said to me one day, You know, these people at cafe, they come and they say, you shouldn't hire your kids right out of school. You should make them go get a job somewhere else first. And I still remember that conversation. I remember looking at my dad with hopeful eyes, like, really? Is this really a possibility? But then, of course, he followed that up by patronizing me, patting me on the shoulder and saying, but don't worry, we're not going to do that. And sometimes today, I still look back on that and say, how might my life have been different If I had pushed back on that, because the problem that arises is you then sell the family business and now you have someone who does not have a resume that I could easily have gone anywhere to go and here, look at all this stuff I've done working for dad. It's kind of hard to completely disguise it. And not only not having the resume, but not having the confidence. And that's something that when I talk about this subject, to families where they have young kids coming up i really try to encourage them to let all of their children go and find their own path if they are going to come back to the family business later they'll be much better prepared for it than Mm. if they just come in and follow your footsteps let them go and prove themselves they'll prove it to themselves then when they come to the business the other employees will recognize that this person is a person who got a job here because they had a job somewhere else. Yes, it may be partly because of their name, but not only because of their name. So they will develop the credibility they need because of that. They will also bring things they learned Mm. into your company. And one of the things so many family businesses have is they have this not invented here, like we have to figure it all out ourselves. And Mm. they often don't take lessons or advice from outside. But that's what the family business needs to grow. So if you can send out your children out as kind of emissaries to go on a recon mission into Mm. other companies and learn things and bring them back, they're only going to help the business in the long run. But that's such a long-term play for parents. And I see myself in my dad's position, like, hurry up, son, and get in here. I have so much to show you. Mm. But there's so much more to learn than what the parents can show you. And they and I will show you that later. Take the time to go and learn it elsewhere first.
0: Absolutely. I love your metaphor analogy of being emissaries, like missionaries going out to bringing experience and perspectives that would be of value to the family business. And you mentioned that you got married and you married into another business family. What was that like now being an in-law? It's an ongoing
1: thing, obviously. Yeah. So I met my wife, Julie, at MBA school. And it was amazing, the, the parallels. We were both the youngest of our family who was going off to go to school. She actually comes from a place in northern Quebec in the province I'm in. And we met, and her family business was actually a lot larger, and it comes from a remote part of the province. So she had the, I really don't want to go back into the woods, up into a mining area, And she had no desire to go back. Plus, she had an older brother who was the vice president of the company, and he was the one designated to be taking over. But they had their liquidity event as well, 10 years after my family did. And so it was interesting to watch how selling a business, when the founder gets to the point where they decide to sell the business, the parallels the way my father went through, and then the way my father-in-law went through it, Mm. And the different reasoning and the different way it affected them. My dad had already his next life plan. He had bought this farm and was planning to spend more and more time on it. My father in law, when he sold his business, it was now what? Now what? what do I do? Mm. And he was one of those guys who was, well, I guess I'll go into town and have breakfast with my buddies. But then after that, if it wasn't golf season, what am I going to do all day? And so that's often a thing we run into when we deal with business families is Mm. the people at the top who have trouble figuring out how to exit and it might make sense monetarily to exit this year but then what right Mm -hmm. and then sometimes they're ready to go but it's not the time in the market to sell the business or they don't know which of their kids to leave the business to and they haven't had those discussions because they've always tried to avoid them and that's so much of what I do when I work with families is help them start and help them continue conversations that they really should be having, but that left to their own group without an outsider guiding them and prodding them and Mm. holding them to account and keeping them on a schedule. They just won't have those conversations. So things get delayed and delayed. The can gets kicked down the road and they never end up talking about the really important things that every successful family that has transitioned the business has had those discussions. Things don't happen by themselves. They happen because they've been discussed and planned and kicked around and co-created with the leading generation and the rising generation to figure out how things are going to work together. But it's not a natural conversation for parents and their offspring to have.
0: Yeah, this is so important that you've highlighted this and that. The decision to sell or the family business brings more to the table than just finance. It's not just a quantitative thing, but they're also qualitative factors. Quite often the family business is a rallying point for the family members and it's the focal commonality for a bond for the family. And I was actually having a conversation with a lady where in her family it made financial sense to sell the business, but they decided not to because it kept the family together. And I think you're so right. Families need that third party that's an expert to guide them through, like you said, it might be the right time dollar-wise to sell, but am I ready as the founder of the business to step away? (laughs) Well, and that happens
1: so often, right? People, they'll sell the business and go, oops, yeah, we did that because it was an opportune time. And now what? Again, left to themselves, They might struggle with that for a while, but Mm. if they deal with someone from the outside who has seen what other families have done to give them some ideas, well, do any of the offspring have any entrepreneurial ideas of their own that you could fund? Mm. Is there some kind of family philanthropy that you all believe in that you could set up a foundation that would then become a reason to begin some family governance around something to rally around? and all these things are possibilities. But if you kind of had your head down building this business, you don't have time to think of this stuff. And it might not ever enter your sphere of what you're thinking about. And then having those conversations about, Mm -hmm. well, now what? Because Mm -hmm. rallying a family around an operating business is relatively easy compared to, you have a $50 million business, and everyone sort of feels like they own something, all of a sudden, you sell it, and you've got fifty million dollars in the bank. Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty easy for the four kids to sit around and go, "Geez, fifty million dollars. There's four of us, so why don't you just write me my check, check. now, right now, and I'll go do my own thing, and I won't have to worry about you." And some families do that, and if that's what they decide to do, having thought through it, that's fine. But most families at that stage are trying to find a way to keep the legacy going, keep mm-hmm. something, keep the family and the wealth both together somehow, at least into the next generation, and hopefully into the next one after that too.
0: That's a really important point, and I'm gonna ask you a question. Why shouldn't they be written individual checks, and why should they stay together and set up a business together, or philanthropy, or a family office together? Why should families stay together? Either answer is fine, Mm -hmm. assuming they have
1: taken the time to ask themselves, that question for example the family that i married into there's just no desire and no inclination and there's just not enough cohesion there Mm -hmm. to even think about hey what are we all going to do together and that's okay and in my family it's almost the same but not as much but the wealth base is not as large so it was never really that big a consideration My family was more about having each of us kids go off and start a career and do our own thing and start a family and restart as a G1 of whatever we're doing. Families should not automatically decide Mm -hmm. that they are going to stay together. One of the assumptions I typically make when I meet with a family for the first time is like, okay, I'm assuming the reason you're calling me in is because you have an idea that you might want to pursue this. So let's go and validate that and see if it does make sense and see if we can find a way to make this work. Mm -hmm. And if we can't, because the two brothers don't get along and forcing them to be partners is just a recipe for disaster. Let's figure that out somewhere relatively early and upfront in the discussion. And let's find a way to divide the wealth, but preserve the family. Because Mm -hmm. too often, the effort to keep the wealth together is what divides the family. And those are the disasters that are avoidable. But the parents who say they write the will, they don't tell their kids what's in it. And then the kids find out, by the way, you're 50-50 partners or 33-33, your partners. Because the parents had this idea of, you know what, we'll force them to work together. Then they'll have no choice. Well, I don't know what the stats are on that, but I imagine that okay. the balance, those have negative results compared to the ones where. You sit with the kids and say, what can we realistically expect this next generation to manage together? It all comes down to a word most people don't like to hear, but family governance.
0: Yeah, Figuring out
1: how they're going to make decisions together. How are they going to communicate? What is their capacity to do that? And if it ends up, we're talking about keeping it together or separating it. Those are two extremes. There's all kinds of things in the middle. In the middle. Mm. You can find ways to sort of give each kid a certain amount to do what they want and keep apart together to give them a reason to stay together. And whether that's a foundation in philanthropy or some small business or a family bank, kind of a financial instrument that each family can tap into for their own entrepreneurial ideas. I heard this story a while ago about a family in Canada. They're going in like third to fourth generation, and they're really well known, and they own some of the companies on the stock exchange. And there were four brothers, and they came up with a thing where everyone started their own business, but they only own 70% of it, and each of their brothers owned 10%. So everyone started a business, they were 70, and their partners were 10, 10, 10. And so each one started. And so now they're cheering for each other. They're leveraging each other's connections and abilities, and they're sort of diversifying their risk. And I thought, what a beautiful way. And anyone can do some version of that. You need to realize that that's a possibility and open your mind to it. And then be able to have the discussions with that rising generation that involves them to have them co-create this with you. Because if you just go and see your lawyer and your tax guy and figure out all these structures and trusts and say, well, here it is, and live with it. And your kids find out about it when it's that complete. Mm. That's not the best way to do it because if you would have taken that, yes, it takes longer. Mm-hmm. Yes, it will be more difficult to get to where you have all the instruments designed and in place. But at least you'll know that those are structures and instruments and companies or holding companies or trusts or whatever, however you structure it, at least you'll know that the people for whom you are designing them we'll appreciate them, we'll understand them, and we'll be ready to work with them as opposed to finding out, holy crap, you mean I own that with him? (laughs) (laughs) That's not a recipe for a good start to a new relationship.
0: So much wisdom in what you said. And you spoke about your family business, went from family business to family office, essentially, but you didn't realize at the time. And there's a lot of conversation with a lot of family businesses, next gen, should we start a family office? Based on your experience, your insider experience, and your professional experience, what tips do you have for next gens that are thinking do we need a family office? How would this all work, et cetera?
1: There's no quick answer to that, but there are a lot of professionals and organizations that have discovered this term family office and it's put like stars in their eyes. And they're like, oh, wow, we're going to tell these families. We've got this family office and it's got all the bells and whistles and we can do everything for you. And they're going to tell you a great story about how they can serve you. And that, it's very dangerous because they have very compelling stories and they can tell you about, oh, yeah, we just signed up this family and that family and you've heard of these names. And say, oh, well, I, I can't go wrong by following them. But really, there's an expression in the family office world If you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office because they are necessarily custom-made for each family. And so before you go shopping for a suit, you need to come and have someone come and measure you. And so you need to have someone come and speak with the family and say, okay, so what do you want this family office to accomplish for you? What is the work that's most important to you Is it to administer things? Is it to invest the money? Is it to educate the family? Is it to help you start to have family meetings and start family governance? Depending on your answers to those questions, you will be entertaining all sorts of different options that you might not have thought of. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of people who are there to advise you just for what you pay them to advise you for, that aren't trying to sell you something. Most mm-hmm. of the people who will approach these families are someone who can either manage their money or manage their accounting or do their taxes and say, we have all these other people who will do all this for you and you'll have a one-stop shop and you'll do it all and we'll take care of it. Sometimes that's the answer. But to evaluate different propositions, ideally you've considered all the different things that you need. And I'm working with a family right now that they're exactly at that stage. They're sort of trying to figure it out. And it's, let me sit there and be with you as you talk to all these people. I can ask them certain questions that you might not have thought of. I can play the dumb guy and ask the stupid question. I'm not worried about that. That you will not necessarily feel comfortable asking certain questions. And then once we talk with your family about what you really need and we've talked to certain providers, then we can sort of custom make what we need. Do you need to hire someone for the admin and outsource the investments? Do you want to hire someone for the investments and outsource the admin? Do you have some trusted people that you've already been working for that you would like to have as part of this? And who could they supervise? And what parts can you farm out to others? How ready are the family members to take on some kind of supervision role or supervisory role or board role over these employees? Often a patriarch will have a liquidity event, hire someone to run their family office, and then the children of the patriarch become like beholden to this employee, where Mm. ultimately, over the longer term, that relationship should be exactly upside down, Mm -hmm. that that person is working for the family. But these relationships get all out of whack when they're not thought through properly and structured properly. And I guess the biggest thing I would say is don't be in a hurry to sign anything. Don't be in a hurry to agree to anything. take your time, explore things, start by hiring one person to take care of something and Mm -hmm. then figure out what you're going to farm out to what trusted person. The other thing is often they'll have investments still in other things. How are you going to integrate the things you already have with all the things that you still want to do? Right so you need to have people to play that kind of central role you got to figure out how the family plays a role or not are they old enough to play a role are they at the age where you want to hire someone that can train them to play a role there's so many things to consider that most of the families they're walking into this they've never done it before they don't really mm-hmm. realize what all the different questions are and so it's easy for them to fall for some kind of a sales pitch where someone says, oh, we take care of this, we take care of that. Only to six months later, realize that they said they do that, but they don't really do that the way they said they do.
0: So much, Richie, that's been my experience. All the what you've articulated, has just been complete experience. So, right, it's not transactional, this family office whole concept. It really is custom made for each family. And like you said, starting small. Taking it a step at a time, it's definitely the way forward and having someone to help you navigate the whole scenario. Someone Um, who's not trying to sell you something else. Someone who's not trying to sell you something. Someone who's there
1: that you're just paying to advise you on making these choices. That if you choose A, B, or C, or half of A and a quarter of B and part of F, that that person doesn't make more or less in the long run depending on which choices you make. Someone that's
0: non-conflicted, yeah. Yes. It's crazy. This is the connected generation. So I have one last question for you. How quite often we see divergences between founding gen and next gens, whether it's different mindsets, different values, different perspectives. What are your tips on how next gens can connect better with founders?
1: They can do a lot more than they think they can. But they need to be patient. They really need to take their time, figure out what's important to them, figure out what messages they want their parents to understand about their readiness, about Mm -hmm. their aspirations, about their hopes and dreams, and find ways to connect on a regular and repeating basis to pass those messages on to their parents. So... Don't say on Sunday at dinner, I'm going to go and give this big, long diatribe of, and put my foot down and say, this is what I want and this is what I expect. You can go there on Sunday and talk for three or four minutes and say something and then back off. And then a few weeks later, come with the next part and do that over a period of time, because whatever messages you are trying to get your parents to understand mm-hmm. will take a while for them to digest, for them to let it sink in. And then in the meantime, in between those weeks, when you're trying to deliver a message, hopefully you are behaving in such a way to reinforce the point that you're trying to make, which is that you're ready and willing and able to do more and to take on more responsibility. So it's an iterative process, kind of send some messages that you're trying to explain to them, this is where I am and this is what I think is important. Then you go and you behave in a way that demonstrates that. Then you go back, hopefully after you've had some successes, and talk about the fact that you've had successes and what you want to do next. And then prove to them that you're everything that you know that you are. But give them the time to absorb it and adjust to it and realize that, wow, this is not that little snot-nosed kid (laughs) that I used to have to make stand in the corner. And... They really, really have grown and matured Mm -hmm. and they're making progress and let the parents realize that, wow, I've got something here and I want to help mold it and keep this person growing because they will be an important part of continuing this family legacy.
0: Absolutely. We are in the microwave generation, as Sissy often says, and quite often we just want instant results. And we're used to downloading seven steps to (laughs) whatever result you want, five ways to. And in this world of family business, it really doesn't work that way.
1: When I coach people, and I do coach almost all of them, are part of a family business in some capacity from one generation or another. And I often find myself having to slow them down. Hmm. They want to do this. They want to do that. And I'll whoa, 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 wait a sec. Wait a sec. So when the last time you talked to your parents about this, how did that go? Well, how can you sort of try to move that ball down the field a little bit further next time? Don't try to go and score a goal from here. Like, just let's move the ball down the field and Mm -hmm. take things one step at a time. Because really, parents are looking at their children in a certain way. And for them to change the lenses on those glasses from looking at that kid in the diapers to looking at the kid with the suit and tie. And realizing that this is the same kid, but oh my God, they've made huge strides. What else are they ready for? That takes a while as a parent.
0: Indeed, incredible. What are you working on
1: that you're excited about? I've actually started a monthly call with colleagues called the First Friday Family Forum that I host. And we take turns presenting a case and just talking about it. We don't record it so that everyone's free to speak. I started this last year with a friend and we've run like 10 of them and we're getting like a couple of dozen people on the call. And it's kind of fun because like your podcast, you sort of create it out of nothing. And all of a mm-hmm. sudden you realize you've got something. And I just realized it sort of fits with our looking at the children and seeing how far they've come that we were just <laughs> talking about. But it's just, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about social capital mm-hmm. and just interacting with other people. And this whole space of working with business families is still relatively new. And we have so much to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And yes, family businesses and family enterprise have a lot of things in common, but there's so many differences that you can learn from other people who have gone through similar things with a different family in a different country. That's the other thing the global nature of this business is fascinating. And through the Family Firm Institute, I've managed to meet people from all over. I put stuff up on LinkedIn sometimes. And I'll look and I'll see it. has got 15 reactions. Okay, 15 reactions. Then I look and I count like it's from four continents. Wow. Which, But because it's such a topic that resonates all around the world, but it's so broad, but there's not, if I wanted to have a meeting with a bunch of colleagues who do the same kind of work as me, I can't just go have a meeting at the restaurant here in Montreal because there aren't that many people who do this. So in order to have valuable conversations, we need to set the network out wide. Mm -hmm. And now with the technology that's available to do this kind of stuff and meet with people, I'm in part of a study group where we call it the G9 study group because we got people from nine different countries on. Wow. And it's so cool to be part of this, to share with people. And I think when you say, what am I working on? I'm working on realizing the importance of my social capital and trying to just keep increasing it because. I think that's a win-win for everybody. It's a win for me. It's a win for my clients. It's a win for the field and the industry to connect more people. We all have so much to learn from each other. And so keep spreading the word that you're spreading with your podcast and other podcasts that are talking about similar things. And we're all learning from each other. And that's the fun part about it.
0: Amazing. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, Steve, how can they reach you? I love that question
1: because my answer is always the same. I'm lucky I have a name that's relatively easy to spell. It's only got one vowel in it. It's an E. It repeats four times, Steve Legler. <laughs> it's spelled just like it sounds. And yet, it's not a common name. Yeah. So it's easy to spell, but it's not common. And so if you Google me, you will find me. You'll either find my LinkedIn. You'll find my website. I'm moving all my stuff from shiftyourfamilybusiness.com, which was my first book title to stevelegler.com to make it even easier to find me. So stevelegler.com, if you Google Steve Legler Family Business, hit me up on LinkedIn. Happy to set up a call to chat about family business, no matter with whom and around what, and see if I can be a resource to you or the families that you work
0: with. Incredible. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation with you, Steve. Always a pleasure, Nikkei. Hope to talk to you again soon. Awesome. That was so meaty and so rich and so dense and just so full of tips. I think even I have to listen to this over and over again. But several things I wanted to highlight, as Steve said, was the importance of co-creation and the process of legacy planning. And quite often what happens is the process of coming together as a family and looking at What should the estate look like across generations? What should succession look like? What should governance look like? That process is often more important than the outcome or the goal because it's the process of coming together, of collaborating, of practising, communicating, of managing and resolving potential conflicts that really actually makes us a stronger family. And it's the strength of the family that really puts us in a great position to propel the business into the next generation. I love that a consistent theme that Steve was saying in a number of my answers was like, there's no one-size-fits-all and there's no quick answer. There's no quick fix to family business matters. And I love, love, love the analogy he gave of before you buy a suit, it's important that someone takes your measurements. And quite often engaging a family office advisor, making big investments in restructuring of the family business or the assets, what have you. Those are pretty expensive suits and suits that take a long time to make. So it's really important that this suit will fit the family well. So I'd encourage you, if you have any questions, get in touch with Steve. He's available on LinkedIn and on his website, as he mentioned. Take care. God bless you. And please share this episode with a friend, leave a review, subscribe. That will make me very happy. (laughs) Thank you and take care. God bless you.